0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we need you, and we pray that in this process of our need, we would humble ourselves before you, before your word, allowing your spirit to do his work in our lives. Minister your grace. Please be glorified as we seek to worship you in the truth. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've been to Disney's Animal Kingdom, you may have ventured into Dino USA. And in Dino USA, there's this really cool dinosaur ride. And you see people going in and coming out. They go in one side and they come out another. It's a constant flow. As you're riding through this dino ride, there are these dinosaurs with nasty teeth trying to eat you. They come really close to your face, and there's this one section as you get toward the end of the ride where you're taking a corner and a dinosaur comes and, and is right above your head, and, and the car turns, and you're going away from it. You feel this sense of relief. And you're about to enter a dark tunnel. And as you're entering this dark tunnel, a ginormous dinosaur comes surging at you with his nasty teeth. And you're thinking, wow. And um, I'm thinking little kids are not probably big fans of the dinosaur ride there. But you have in the back of your mind that you saw people going in on one side and coming out on the other. So you think, I think I'm okay. And that's not the worst. This is, this is going back a few years because they've actually eliminated this, this particular showing. In Magic Kingdom, in Tomorrowland, right near Space Mountain, there was this thing called Alien Encounter. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you sit in these seats and you get strapped in. Like, strapped in. And there's this cylinder in the middle of this theater, it um, goes all the way around it. There's this cylinder, and then the thing starts, you're thinking, all right, people go in, people come out, I'm sure I'll be okay. And you're sitting there, and, and you know they're, they're trying to do this teleporting of this strange creature, this alien from outer space, and, and, it, it, and it makes it into this, this cylinder that's in the middle of the room. And all the while, you know, there's a lot of things going on around you. It's very, um, it's more than three-dimensional because there's like stuff spitting at you and there's air breathing on you. It's it's pretty interesting. Well, the lights all go off and, and you can hear this banging. And then you hear glass breaking. And then you hear wings, like really big wings, um, flapping. And then... Behind you, your 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 seat starts to like push down on your shoulders, and then like you, you can get little glimpses of like spittle coming your way. It's 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 intense. Now, I'm not easily shaken by these kinds of things. I, like I kind of find it to be a little bit funny, personally. My wife, on the other hand, was sitting next to me. Now, I, have, I don't know how I can illustrate this properly, but get one of these seats. You know how sometimes when you're sitting on a seat and you're like. Yeah, maybe a little edgy, and you're like, you start bouncing your knee like this. Just kind of that energy that you have. You know that? Well, my wife's leg was doing that uh, involuntarily, like so much that like, like I, I, my, my whole body was shaking from her knee, <laughs> banging up and down. This isn't real. It's a show. But I want to tell you about something that is real. Satan's attack against the church. Satan's attack against God. Satan's attack against you. Satan's attack against the gospel. This is real. This is real. This isn't one of those shows you go to where you see people coming in one side and coming out. On the other. This is a completely different scenario. One of those is for entertainment purposes only. Whether people are entertained is another matter altogether. But when it comes to the attack, the onslaught of Satan against the church, against the people of God, against the gospel, against God, this is real. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear. We come to the last book of the Bible, the book of The Revelation. And the Lord Jesus pens some letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And as he's jotting these letters, short letters, he includes information about Satan in a number of them. And I just want for us to take a a quick glance at them. Look at chapter 2 of Revelation Verses 9 and 10. Where Jesus is writing to the church of Smyrna. And he writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to what is that word? Suffer. Is suffering real or imagined? Yeah. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to be, or about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto what? Yeah. Death and I will give you the crown of life. That doesn't sound like a game to me. It doesn't sound like we're watching a cheap horror flick. Does it? This is real. Look at the next letter, the Church of Pergamum or Pergamus, depending on your particular flavor of how you like to say it, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, where God's word says, and Jesus pens to. The church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny. What's that next word? My faith. My faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This is real. Look at chapter 2. In verse 24 now, as we see Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira, in verse 24 he makes this statement, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. He is warning them of the deep things of Satan. Chapter 3 now, as the Lord Jesus deals with the church of Philadelphia, one of the two churches that there is no negative word spoken of as the Lord Jesus speaks to them about the difficulties that they face. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word About patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. Follow me, please, to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, where we see the Apostle John speaking also here of Satan. You'll find that on page 1024. Now, what's funny on our church Bibles, wherever there's a, a, a title, On the top of the page, there's no page number. So, like, you get to 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, they're all titles, so you don't have a page number, but I'm sure you can make, you know, figure out. We're on page 1024, 1 John, chapter 5, and verse 19. As John comes to the end of this encouraging letter to a group of believers whose faith had been rocked by false teaching. In 1 John 5 and verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God. This is is good. We know that we are from God. And we also know this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. The whole world, as it were, is like a toy on the lap of the evil one. He's playing with the world. He's playing with their mindset, their desires, the way they view life, the way they view God, the way they view the Bible, and particularly the way they view Jesus. He is fully against the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Because the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross is the only hope. It's the only stay. It's the only security. It's the only confidence that we can have. So if he can undermine the preaching of Jesus Christ's death burial and resurrection, if he can undermine the perfect life of Jesus Christ, if he can undermine the deity of Christ or the full humanity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, if he can, if he can deny the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's cross work, if he can undermine that in any way, he's happy because his whole goal is to keep people like us from embracing the only message the only one who can save us this is real this is real first peter please chapter 5 first peter chapter 5 you'll find that on page 1017 of one of our church bibles the apostle peter equally inspired as the apostle john in both 1 John chapter 5, and the Apostle John as he recorded the written words of the Lord Jesus to the churches of Asia Minor. So we have inspired writing in 1 Peter, 1 John, in the book of Revelation. God is bringing to our attention the, the reality of the battle that Satan is waging against us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, in fact, we'll just read verse 8 for now. God's Word says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is no joke. This is no fantasy. This is not a horror flick. This is real. The church is under attack because Satan has been on an all-out assault against God and His will from, for thousands and thousands of years. Because He is out to distort, to discourage, to disparage, and to disintegrate our faith, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. With that being said, I want for us to turn to our main passage for this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read this passage of Scripture where God is preparing our hearts, preparing our minds, preparing the church for this all-out assault that Satan has waged against us. Verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. which is the Word of God. The context keeps going down to verse 20. We will stop for now. We've already dealt with in our study the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, and so before our attention this morning is this call to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. To put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. If you want a more literal rendering of verse 15, you could read the New American Standard. The ESV takes a little bit of liberty to interpret it for us. It does an excellent job of interpreting. I prefer my translation not to interpret for me. I prefer it to just translate. Um, so while I like the translation that we've received in verse 15, because I find it to be accurate to what is being said in the text of the Greek It takes some liberties to interpret it for us, um, which is not my favorite methodology. He says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. One of the advantages that the Roman army had was their modified sandals. It was a leather um, sandal, with hobnails on the bottom. Now, you know what a hobnail is? It's like cleats. They were made out of iron, sometimes of bra- uh, bronze. And these cleats would, would give them good traction. Now, if you think about it in, in today's thoughts, in fact, you actually have to go like a decade back for this to be even that practical. Um, when, when the football players would play on natural grass surfaces, they would have different um, size Different lengths of cleats. I remember a couple of different times in, in San Francisco at Candlestick Park, where the, the field would get really sloppy at times, they would have to change their sandals or change their cleats a number of times to, to adjust to make sure they had the right length of cleat. Now, today in, in today's NFL and in soccer and all these things, they, there are very few natural grass stadiums anymore. They have the artificial turf, and so they have different kinds of shoes for that. But, To to get the the idea of what they're doing, you you think of cleats. Now, cleats are great. They're really great on grass or in dirt. Like baseball players wear cleats as they run around the base paths. Uh, On the other hand, if you get onto pavement, cleats are kind of annoying. Or even worse than that, if you uh, end up uh, on some marble (laughs) and you start running on marble in cleats, guess what's going to happen to you? Soon enough, your feet will come out from from under you. Now, so the story goes, as the Romans were uh, coming into Jerusalem and defeating and just obliterating Jerusalem. When they got into the temple, the the soldiers went running into the temple on the marble floor, and they were coming. Their feet were coming out from under them. Of course, that didn't stop them from decimating Jerusalem because God said it was going to happen. Go figure. But nonetheless, footwear is essential. So that these these. Uh, Leather sandals—they would—they would wrap around their their ankles up up, uh, up above their ankles, so they would have stability and they would have the ability to uh, to have support. Footwear has always been important. Today, it's all about design, right? You've got like the Adidas Yeezys and the um, Vans Old School and like the whatever Taylor Converse and all of these things. So I'm sure back in the day, there were some designer brands like Nero Air and uh, (laughs) (laughs) Brutus Old School now, of course, if you're really cool, when you spell school, you don't spell it correctly. You don't put S C H O O L. You have to put S K O O L. And so there was the brutus old school shoes. I'm sure it wasn't about design, was it? It wasn't about the these uh, sweet things I could resell on eBay after I was done using them and get more money than I paid for them. It wasn't about that. It was all about function. It was all about protection. It was all about being able to stand your ground. What makes footwear so important? This is going to this is going to blow you away. I actually should charge you money for this. You ready? What makes footwear so important? Ready? Your feet. Is that profound, or what? I have had a few rough years physically. Um, been a bit difficult. A few years back, I was out plowing the, the lot, and I had my boy Asa in the back with me, and he wanted to go in, so that's fine. I pulled the plow over, you know, put it in park, put the plow blade down, grabbed him, started to walk inside, and I hit an icy spot. I had him in my left arm. Uh, hit an icy spot, my feet came out from under me, And I reached down to keep him safe, and I tore my right rotator cuff, and I had to have it uh, surgically repaired and all that wonderful stuff. Went through that, that stunk. And then, last year, as you well know, I was riding my motorcycle, and someone broadsided me. Nonetheless, what I found through these difficulties, personally, is being without my right arm, while that was difficult was nothing, for me, compared to not having my left foot. I don't walk on my arms. I walk on my feet. When I was going around with one arm and a sling, I could still carry stuff and walk. I could get in and out of the shower. I could take care of myself. I could still reach things. Everything was was okay. I'm not minimizing it if you have a, a, a bad wing, okay? But I'm just telling you, for me, in my experience, what I found out is it's much more of a horror when one of your wheels is broken, because getting in and out of the shower was quite a thing. Being able to carry anything with my crutches, I am never, I hope this doesn't offend you, I'm never, ever going to wear a fanny pack, all right? <laughs> No belly pack, no fanny pack. None of those things are ever going to be making an appearance on this guy. Backpack, I can handle. A little uh, bag to hold along the side of your crutches, you know how annoying that is? It's horrible. You're going, and it's like getting tangled up and you're just like, oh, why am I doing this? I'm such a, I should have had one of my kids carry my stuff for me. It was, it was difficult. your feet form a foundation for you. Any kind of athletic endeavor you find yourself in, they're going to tell you, most of the time, shoulder, feet shoulder-width apart. Maybe your power foot forward, maybe you weak foot forward, but the, your, your legs are going to be shoulder-width apart because it's giving you a base. It's giving you a foundation. If if I were in a fight and someone comes at me, I have the ability to shuffle my feet. I can move and, and I, can, I can change my weight because I have a good foundation under me. If you have a bad foundation under you, you are you're prey for someone coming at you. If you're trying to, to play football or basketball and you, you have your feet like this, you're going to get crossed up. That's when they, they call it breaking your ankles. If that's breaking your ankles, you don't actually know what breaking your ankles is. Nonetheless, it's pretty funny. My, my son the other day, we were playing basketball at, at the, um, the gym, and he was trying to, 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 to get his brother to have his ankles broken with his sniff, neat little move. He, he did this, this move, and he fell over. It was awesome. He broke his own ankles. <laughs> Nonetheless, your feet, your feet form a foundation. This is what makes this footwear so essential. The, the Roman army had this great advantage in war because they had good footing. They could go m- on most terrains and be successful and tread that terrain. The enemies would place little spikes, actually not little, but spikes in the ground, but they would be just barely above the surface, enough so that if you don't have proper footwear on and you start and you put your foot down on it, it's going to pierce the the sole of your foot. How good are you as a soldier when you're bleeding on your foot? Now, clean streets or dirty streets in the first century. What do you think? If you have a gash in your foot, what do you think is going to come next? You're going to have an infection. What happens if an infection goes untreated? (laughs) Bad stuff. Bad stuff. But the Roman soldiers were prepared because they had the right equipment on their feet. Now, we're, we're talking about all this physical stuff, and that's not really even the point. That's not even the point. This is not a physical war that we're involved in. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It may come across that way from time to time. There's something deeper about this than the physical. This is about a spiritual war that's taking place. So he tells us to, to put on our feet, to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's the old rendering of it. He tells us that when we put these, this spiritual footwear on, it will have the result of preparing us. The preparation or readiness of the gospel of peace. Now this word has been used numerous times, this word preparation, throughout our New Testament. And so I think we have a little bit of a, of a flavor for it. In Mark chapter 1, the, the, the author, Mark, writes of John the Baptist that he was going out, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight he's getting something ready that was John the Baptist's role was to prepare the people's hearts for Jesus the Messiah the Savior when Paul was writing to the to his friend Philemon about his friend Onesimus he said you know I'm in I'm in jail right now but I want to come to you could you please prepare for me a guest room That's in Philemon 22. At least two times in our New Testaments, God tells us about the preparation being made for our future. This is is glorious. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I go. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'm, I'm getting something ready for you. And then at the end, in Revelation 21, we see this statement uh, from the Apostle John. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. And the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. There's the key. Something from God, prepared as a bride adorned or her husband. Think about this. God is making something. He's preparing something for his people. He's getting it ready. That's the concept. Something's getting ready. And God has told his people, us, that we're to be ready. We're to be ready for some things. And we see Paul telling... Timothy. Something about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says in verse 21, therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy. Useful for the uh, master of the house. Listen to what he says. Ready for every good work. God says, if if you'll recognize who you are and what your purpose is, and you'll set aside those things that keep you from your purpose of being God's people, God's vessels, if you'll set aside those things that keep you from that, you will be a vessel that's ready for every work that God has for you. This is the call. And so this is the concept that we see in Ephesians chapter 6. The meaning of preparedness or readiness is that there's a battle coming at us. There's a battle coming at you. And it's real. It's not imagined. It's not hocus pocus. It's not fantasy world. It's real. There's a battle and you and I need to be ready. It's no joke. Physical training prepares us for a basketball game. Studying prepares us for a test. Sanding woodwork or walls prepares the surface for paint. But what is it that prepares us for this assault? What prepares us for this assault? What will enable us to have the footing that we need when the enemy attempts to undermine our faith? When the enemy attempts to challenge our faith, when the enemy tries to bore us with our circumstances. I pause there for, for a reason. I wonder how many of you, how many of us, are bored with our circumstances. I will tell you, friend, that that is a sweet little tactic Of Satan to lull you into lethargy. What will prepare us to fight against this? It is the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace will prepare you to fight against these things. Why does he use the phrase gospel of peace instead of just the gospel? The gospel is the good news about how we can have peace with God. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done in our stead. Take a look please at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's already told us about this peace offered to us by the Lord Jesus in this same letter. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 12, listen to what he says. Ephesians 2:12, remember that you were at that time past tense, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That is a bleak picture. He's letting us know, essentially, that our sin puts us at enmity with God. Out of fellowship, out of communion, out of good relation. Our sin produces a a relationship of disdain. We're at odds with God. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Listen carefully. That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making what? Peace. Well, that's that verse 15 14 and 15 is talking about peace with with other people but verse 16 is not and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility you see in our natural condition we're born we're born in sin and sin makes us at odds with god and what jesus has come to do is to to fix that condition of enmity that condition of being at odds he's come to reconcile us to God take a look please at second corinthians chapter 5 Jesus himself is our peace beginning in verse 18 we want to see this passage having spoken of his making us a new creation he says all this is from God who through Christ, what does it say? Reconciled Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God of God. Wow, there's there's a lot to talk about here. Here we are. Our feet are planted and we're ready. But we don't have on the gospel of peace and so we have on slippers. And someone bigger and stronger comes along and starts to to push push you over. And you start to lose your balance or your feet are slipping out from under you because you don't have good footing. What is the solution to this? The, the shoes of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Why do we need the gospel of peace? Because the gospel, the good news, tells me that in my natural condition, I have no way to stand. I have no ability to fight against the onslaught of Satan. When he says, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, all I can say is, yeah, you're right. When he says, you're a terrible husband, all I can say is, yeah, I don't do everything I need to do. You're not a good father. Yeah, I mess up all the time. You're not that great of a pastor. Yeah, oh, I don't have much to say. But when I strap on the shoes of the gospel of peace, the good news is, the peace is provided for me. The peace is found in Christ, not in me. It's not my shoe wear. It's His. The results... You know, the, when you think about the gospel of peace, you're thinking about God revealing our enmity with Him. We're thinking about how the gospel points us toward reconciliation with God, and we're, we're recognizing the results that, that is peace with God. The results of God's work through the gospel. The results of God's work through the gospel is this. First of all, I have peace with God, no longer at enmity, no longer an enemy, no longer at odds, peace with God. And then, as I'm walking in the gospel, as the gospel has gripped my heart, and I recognize that not only is the gospel the entryway into salvation, it is what secures my salvation... It is what matures me in my day-to-day life. We call that sanctification. And it's what ensures my glorification. The gospel is it. It's the sum and substance because the gospel is not just a message. It's about Jesus. He is the uh, source and substance of our salvation. As we recognize that we're at peace with God and we walk in the gospel, you know what happens? The peace of God resides within us. So I, I have the peace Of God. And when I'm at peace with God and I have the peace of God, you know what happens to those around me? There's peace with them. There's peace. Satan wants to undermine that peace time and time again. And God says, the way that you deal with this unrest, the way you deal with the unrest that you have between you and me is the gospel. The way you deal with the unrest inside your own soul is the gospel. The way you deal with the unrest between you and someone else is the gospel. It's the gospel that produces peace. There's a real battle coming your way. There's a real battle coming my way. What do we do in the midst of it? We're not going out. We're not going out to to find the battle. The battle's coming at us from all directions. The battle's coming our way. We we put on the gospel of peace. It prepares us to stand. This peace with God, this peace of God, and this peace with others are all the result of, Of the work accomplished in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. This is what we embrace. This is what we experience. Have you experienced the peace of God? The peace of God is not the absence of conflict, the peace of God is not the absence of difficulty. The peace of God is peace in the midst of the storm. You experience that kind of peace when tumultuous seas come your way. And you can go lay your head down on the pillow in the stern of the ship. I know who the captain is. Why was Jesus sleeping? He knew he was going to get to the other side. How did he know? God's plan's not done yet. not going to die in a boat. That's not the plan. I know the plan's different. I'm going to die. I'm going to lay my life down. It's not, a, it's not a watery death. It's a bloody death. So I can sleep. Well, we don't know. We don't know what's going to bring our demise, do you? You know what it is? Maybe some of you you might know or have an idea, at least, of what the demise will be. You don't know when. Do you know what lies on the other side of that demise? How old are you? How old are you? Well, someone here might be 13. Someone in here might be in their 80s. Oh, that's a long time. Oh, 80s. Whew. Man, I used to think the 40-year-olds 40 40 were old. Now I'm 42. Now I have to think someone older than that's old. 80 years old. That's, that's, that's been, it's been around for a while. How long is eternity? Grapple with that one for a minute. It only takes a second. 80 years over against eternity. You don't know what the demise will be, but you know what the glory is. Have you experienced the peace of God? The peace of God is what we embrace. The peace of God is what we experience. By God's grace, the peace of God is what we demonstrate. First to one another, and then to a world that doesn't have that peace. Listen, you don't have to go anywhere. The people are all around you. I applaud people that give their lives to serve the Lord at home and abroad. Civilians and military members. I I applaud them. You don't have to go anywhere to demonstrate the gospel of peace. People are all around. This peace that we embrace and experience and demonstrate is what we offer to people. We offer it to them. This passage is not about going out with the gospel. There are other passages that deal with that. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about how to stand when we are under siege. And we are. You might not know that you're under siege. You might think this is just common. This is just ordinary. This is what everyone deals with. Okay. You can view it from a A human earthly standpoint, that's all right, I guess. Um, But God wants us to know there's more to what you're dealing with than meets the eye. Know that everything you face is a spiritual battle. And you can't face a spiritual battle with physical means or fleshly means or human means. We need spiritual. Resources, and God has given them to us in the gospel of peace. What will keep my footing? Class, the gospel of peace will keep your footing. Let's take a look, please, at one more passage, and we're going to call it the end of our study for the morning as much as I wanted to get to the shield of faith. Jude, verse 20 and following. This is a fitting way to conclude our time together. I was actually going to turn to Jude at the end of our study on the shield of faith anyway. So we're going we're to touch it and then we're going to come back again. We're going to circle back. So this is a fine place for us to conclude our consideration. Jude 20. God's Word says this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Just pause for a second. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? It's an excellent question. Where does the love of God come from? From God, right? (laughs) He he poured out His Spirit into our hearts. He poured out His love into our hearts by His Spirit that He's given to us. And the Spirit produces the fruit... Of love. What makes me a lovable being to God? Jesus. Jesus does. Alright. So... Build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so he gives these instructions. And it's like, that's, there's, that's a lot to take in in a very short period of time, Jude. Jude. He's letting us know of this call to to, to build one another up, to pray in the Spirit, to to not deviate from the love that is gifted to us by the Spirit from God, to, to wait for the mercy and to care about other people that are struggling. You see that? And then he concludes this incredible letter with, in my opinion, the most glorious doxology I have ever read in my entire life you please read with me verses 24 and 25? It says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. What is he saying? Who's going to keep you from falling? Not you. And not me. And not even one another as much as we want to help. I want to help you. This is why I do this. I could do other things. I want to do this. I want to help you. I want you to help me. I want us to help one another. This is what I want. I want to grab onto to you. I want to cling on to you so you can know Jesus better. This is what I want to do. I cannot make it happen. But I know the one who can. He can keep you from falling. He can keep you from stumbling. He will keep you and present you if you know him. He'll present you blameless. Blameless. Perfect. Righteous. Pure. Amen. For how long? Forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We're we're thankful that you have not in any way left us defenseless, but you've given us the only defense through Christ. Dear God, I pray for anyone in this place that does not know Jesus. Father, they need this. Open their eyes. Give them life. May they respond and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for each person Believer, myself included, dear God, help us to trust you, to believe you, to know that this battle is real, but we have everything we need. We have nothing to fear, but we do need to pay attention. Give us wisdom and help us to trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.